people who listen to jazz music, I don't know, have sex outside marriage. The dogs were all high. Is it possible to use LSD to control the mind? Cannabis is destroying our dogs. Getting ready actually for this interview, as I said, uh, we were chatting before. Uh, I watched really a lot of Joe Rogan stuff. And then one question, I actually struggle with the definition of drugs. Like I was really trying to figure out where we draw the line of what we call a drug and it's kind of accepted. And then what we call a drug. And it's like, yeah, we have to ban that. Do you, how do you define it? Well, yeah, that is a good question. And it's one of the ones that everybody struggles with. So when you, I, I mean, I have to ask you a follow-up question yeah, to even ahead. know how to answer it. Go ahead. So you're talking about what do we define as a as a, an illegal drug or a narcotic, or do you mean, are you including medicinal drugs in that? No, question? I do not include uh, medicinal drugs. No, no, sure. I mean, we used alcohol at some point to treat something, uh, but and we're trying to use marijuana at this point medically. Yeah. Uh, but I'm talking more about uh, substances that change your mindset and well i would say it's not an answerable question mm -hmm. so the the only thing that delineates an illegal drug from another drug is the law mm -hmm. that's it i mean there's no other way to define it because the law is elastic right it changes and lots of substances occupy both spaces right they're medicinal on the one hand but then they might be used in ways that we think of as being for recreation or otherwise try to change how someone feels, thinks, or behaves for fun. So you gave the example of alcohol before, and you know certainly alcohol was prescribed as treatment. I mean, in some ways, still use alcohol for health purposes. You think about things like rubbing alcohol. But then when someone's consuming rubbing alcohol, we think, oh, yeah, that's a really big problem. Um, but modern drugs function the same way. So maybe one of the best examples of this would be to think about stimulant medications, drugs like Adderall, Vyvanse, Concerta, um, Ritalin. Those are prescribed to people, usually on the basis of something like an ADHD diagnosis, hyperactivity. But there's also a thriving market in terms of people using them as study aids. They're not getting prescribed for that reason, but you know, here at McMaster, you can buy on the black market, you can buy those drugs. People do to try to press through and finish a paper or to study for their final exams. People also use them just to, to go you know, out on the weekend. So some people will you know, crush or crack Ritalin tablets and snort it. Damn. Yeah. And so, so that I would say is not that uncommon for any drug that's psychoactive, right? So when I say psychoactive, I mean that it has the ability to impact how we think or feel or behave, including even to things like pain. Any, anything that's psychoactive could have medicinal uses but could also have, you know, other types of other recreational uses or what I would think about as instrumental uses. Like, so it's for a purpose. When I talked about um, stimulants to study before, that's using it instrumentally. Or like truck drivers will use them to stay awake mm -hmm. right, yeah. when they're doing long hauls. Um, even some of the harshest drugs 
this is part of their story. Heroin, right? Heroin was produced by a German pharmaceutical company in the 1890s. That's where it comes from. Okay. Its name comes from the idea that it was, quote unquote, heroic. So it was so good a medicine that it could relieve any kind of pain. So they called it heroin. And... You know, it sort of remains as a as a medical drug for for some time before you know we 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 set that line down. We say no, no, no. Now it's going to be illegal. This is a very long winded no, answer but, to your question. There is no there is no, no other way to to say what the line is yes. between those drugs other than the law. And then who and when we establish uh, the law, is it? who is established is it just politicians with a certain political agenda or it's more scientists i would say it's even bigger than that so it's a it's a kind of social story so you know ultimately it's going to be politicians okay yeah okay or maybe in some cases i don't really understand how the law works that much it might be judges ruling on a certain case but it's largely politicians Now, yes, those politicians are going to often, not always, look to scientists for some justification. But what I would say is that politicians' attitudes, whether they think about making something legal or illegal, Mm. even scientists, it will depend on what the social story of that drug is. So you're looking at how all of these drugs in Canada became illegal. Lots of people have, have written on this. Similar story in the United States. The process was a social one, not just some scientific processes. Because, for example, we associate a drug with some part of the population that worries people or scares people. So in Canada, for instance, we associated opium with uh, with Chinese immigrants in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. So the, part of the decision to to make drugs like that illegal was we had these concerns about and i want to be clear these are not fair or justified concerns yeah, yeah, but the... sort of racist attitudes towards chinese migrants okay so the decision to make something like opium illegal was in part informed by our fears or our concerns about the chinese and the same story unfolds uh in canada and the united states You know, whether it's marijuana uh, in the United States being associated with Mexicans at one point or later with African-Americans. Here in Canada, if you look at some of the discussions around the decision to make certain drugs illegal, often they're making reference to the types of people they they associate with those drugs Mm -hmm. and say, well, you know, this drug is associated with a particular subculture, jazz musicians. And we know that people who listen to jazz music, I don't know, have sex outside marriage or there's inter- oh. interracial sex. <laughs> okay. You know, these real dangerous things. <laughs> okay. Um, and therefore we should, we should ban this drug because otherwise it's going to lead to, you know, these terrible social consequences. Interesting, but then when we draw that like because i came to i came to canada like six years ago right Uh, for me let's say cannabis was never associated with uh, mexicans nor black people it was actually always for me associated with white people it was always it was uh, i would go to like party and that who i would see smoking 
cannabis. Like I don't know why. And then in my mind, that was always an interesting because it, it wasn't always an interesting point. So when they made it legal, I was like, hell yeah! Like we all, we all kind of. For me, it's like these people have been doing it forever. Like why, why only now then? Yeah, I mean that's also uh, also a good question, but it kind of goes back to what I was saying before. That line that we're drawing is a product of of social circumstances. So you rightly pointed out. You look around the room. You see that everyone is is using <laughs> cannabis. Why is this illegal? Of course, we're going to legalize it. At some point, it reaches a kind of tipping point, mm. right? When socially, it was no longer really sensible to to keep that drug, in this case, cannabis, to keep yeah. it illegal. Now, I'm not saying that all illegal drugs, you know, people aren't using them. Of course, people are using lots of drugs that are illegal. But with cannabis, like it, it hit a certain point at which time it really didn't make sense anymore. So is it now the matter of a pass, you think, in this country specifically? Or we will have another debate in five years when we'll have people who use it recreationally just as using alcohol and then we'll have another discussion or it's just like we settle and let's move on. Well, as a historian, you know, I'm, I'm used to thinking in long periods of time. Um, so I kind of reject most arguments that were just on this sort of steady progression towards an ever brighter future okay because history doesn't demonstrate that history history always shows that things ebb and flow so you know we already tried to make alcohol illegal in this country at one point certainly in the united states a very famous story about attempts to make alcohol illegal Cannabis has been legalized now. I don't know that it will stay that way forever. So just before we, we started mm -hmm. taping this, I was having a conversation with a woman who was telling me how she was at the vet's office yesterday. And there were all these dogs in the vet's office and no one could figure out what was going on with them. They, were, they had some kind of neurological problem. Turned out the dogs were all high because like people were smoking weed and like just tossing it, you know, the remnants down on the street. And I guess dogs are eating this up. Yeah. So vets' offices are apparently being flooded with dogs that are high. The owners don't know what's going on. Now, that's kind of a, a ridiculous, silly example. Um, but who knows? Maybe those sorts of stories accumulate. And at some point, people say, well, we made a mistake. Mm. You know, cannabis is destroying our dogs. We need, <laughs> that's, we need to that's, undo this process. That's a great BuzzFeed article. Yeah. I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's likely that we're going to see a change in status in 10 or 15 years. Okay. But, you know, 50 years from now, yeah, maybe it's illegal again. Do you think... Uh, or maybe it, it's in the water supply. I have no... Like, it could yeah, be, yeah. you know, it could go... But do you think it's possible that it will be... Kind of will acquire the same status as alcohol? Because that's usually in a day-to-day -day conversation that would usually compare, usually recreationally. You're like, you drink alcohol, what's wrong with weed? It's like, it's just as bad. Yeah, it's interesting, but let me ask you a question. Yeah. Do you, do you think that people treat them as the same? Like in the same way that someone quite openly says, yeah, yeah I had a glass of wine last night. No. No, right? No. Despite it being legal, people still don't feel comfortable. Yes. You know, I was, I was chatting with someone else about this who was saying like, oh, you know, I don't want my child to know that I smoke weed. 
Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. I mean, I get where that comes from, but you don't hide from your child the fact that you drink wine or drink beer. Where, you know, what's that about? And it just yeah. shows that, that like social attitudes change, but sometimes change slowly. And I still think there's a fear of judgment from people like, oh, what's someone going to say if they know that I'm smoking weed? And as we're going back to the fact that, as you said, it's social. What's the social the stigma social. that comes with it? Yeah, the social and legal don't always match up. They tend to catch up to one another. And what goes first, what do you think? For me, I think social. Yeah? Usually, but not always. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when cannabis was made illegal in this country, it was, I think, 1923, in the early 1920s. There was no social concern. There, there, this wasn't prompted by lots of people mm. using cannabis. I Probably most Canadians had no idea what cannabis was. So the law, and it's interesting, historians don't agree as to why it was made illegal. A couple different theories. Um, but the law wasn't following social attitudes then. The law happened... Social attitudes developed in response to the law, to, to that law, right? With some people going down the road of saying, "Well, it's illegal; it must be a demon menace." Other people saying, "It's illegal. This is kind of exciting," you know. And then the '60s come, and that changes attitudes again. Um, so the law can come first, but I think usually social attitudes change. Uh huh. Interesting. Very interesting. And you said about 60s, right? Just we'll talk. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But um, if they ban marijuana in, let's say, 1920s, how the hell then um, in 60s, it was such an explosion of, I mean, of everything, of all kind of drugs, not just um, not just marijuana, like everything. Let's just try everything and ride it till the end. Yeah, and that's a particular you know, cultural moment in, in time. Of course, Canada doesn't exist as an island, so what I'm talking about is not really explicitly a Canadian story. Um, but I think in the 1960s, you had, you know, you're kind of like a coming into a generation after World War II. And I think that that war shaped attitudes and opinions in a certain way. And that persisted for a while, but in the 60s, you know, there's this sort of real idea that the norms by which society lived could and indeed should be challenged. There are other reasons for this. So some of them are even um, just some changes in technological development. If we're thinking just about drug culture. Yes. For instance, um, the, the synthesis of LSD, right, of acid, that... That's another actually great example of a drug that starts its life out as a medical drug, right? Something that um, psychiatrists thought was really promising, something that was prescribed in psychiatric set- uh, settings, some other instances, but largely in psych settings. And it sort of only slowly becomes associated with this countercultural movement, right? The hippies. And that changes attitudes in a certain way. Right, so LSD, you know, it, it's made illegal, not because there was some terrible, I don't know, social costs associated with it, but because 
people were really worried about hippies and this fear about the hippie movement, you know, because the hippie movement is not just people smoking weed or using LSD or having sex. It's also about people out on the streets, right? There, there are huge protests or in some people's, from some people's perspective, riots at the end of the 1960s. There's this sense that there's, there's like this youth culture that's destabilizing society. So those sorts of fears all get wrapped up together. Mm-hmm. And LSD goes from being this sort of promising medical drug to the, the sign of a youth culture out of control. You know, how we get to the 1960s is, I think, is really complicated. And I don't have a simple answer. I could say, oh, you know, the 1960s turned into the 60s because X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. For me, it has to do with a kind of generational shift after World War II. But a lot of other historians would would give you different attitudes and opinions. And do you think, because as you said, um, LSD was developed in a lab and when it make basically made a breakthrough on in the streets do you think it hurt the the research the scientific component of it absolutely there's really great cbc clips you can find online mm-hmm. of um, medical physicians appearing on television imploring the government not to make lsd illegal because they still saw it as this sort of product and tool of science, right? Something that could make society better. Something that could be used in the right situation, in the right settings, in order um, to to provide sort of good therapeutic care for people. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, the science took a huge hit. Of course, once it's made illegal, the science on on LSD grinds to a halt. Mm -hmm. And we're only now beginning to learn more about this. I mean, LSD is not, not my specialty. Uh, no. I have a very good friend uh, by the name of Erica Dick who, who knows everything about this. But, um, you know, she, she talks a lot about this process. And, and she's also sort of paying attention to how LSD is coming back. And we're starting to see LSD trials. Permission is being granted here and there for people to use LSD again in these kind of scientific medical settings. Talking about more like uh, shifting this conversation from maybe LSD to just endurance psilocybin, right? That's because I believe the component, the main component of it. Um, when I was researching about it, it's that one theory um, about just in general, right? When you, the, the, the people who had all the trips and even in the 60s and Timothy Leary, I believe, was a big, a, a big uh, advocate for that. And they the way they described the experience is something else like a second a second door to a second dimension or different dimension open for me and i went with that does it doesn't do you think it's as like i'm a bit skeptic to that but i've never tried anything like this as well so i'm more like maybe you just had a hallucination and that was your trip and then you came back and now you're trying to make something more of it than it actually is it's interesting. Um, what I would say is that the impact of most drugs, almost any drug, is in part going to be conditioned by expectations. Okay. So I'll give you an example. There's a famous study done a few decades ago where they gave a bunch of undergraduate students beer. 
and they got them into a room and they said, okay, you can drink as much as you want. We just want to observe you. So the students start drinking and of course they start getting really drunk and people are tripping on one another and someone's throwing up, all this sort of stuff's happening. But then belatedly, they reveal the fact that it's non-alcoholic beer. Now, how do those students get drunk? In part, it's about expectation, right? Mm. So you have a sense for what this drug is going to do. That then shapes the experience that you have. So if you presumably are taking LSD thinking this is going to you know, open up the doors to a, a sort of new way of understanding and viewing the world, then maybe your experience is conditioned somewhat in that regard. Hmm. I mean, there, obviously there, there is like a, there is a biochemical process at work. So it's not that you could just take a bunch of LSD or, you know, drink a ton of alcohol and have no effect on you whatsoever. Um, but exactly that the details of it will be somewhat con conditioned by expectations. Now, those expectations, though, you know, the, the ones you were talking about with, with Timothy Leary, those same expectations were part of why doctors thought it might be beneficial for people. Because? Because they thought in some circumstances it would give people opportunity to think about or understand their life in a different way. So again, I'm drawing a lot from, from Erica Dick's work, but she talks about how uh, LSD used in the treatment of alcoholics, for example, was useful because it provided a kind of spiritual experience for people who could, who could almost sort of look at their life and, and look at themselves from outside and then get a better idea of, you know, why is it that I'm drinking or how is it that I'm harming myself or harming the people around me? So th those doctors thought it could be spiritual or it, it could provide that, that mm -hmm. psychedelic uh, experience. So expectations really matter. And there's like lots of fascinating stories about how expectations shape things. So I'll give you another one. Yes, um, please. It's just so awesome. Like how can it, getting drunk of a beverage that you think is alcoholic if I can convince myself that, like I will save so much money. I'll just, <laughs> just drink yeah. water and that's it. Just go all the really way Really drunk there. on iced tea. Yeah. Um, so another good example of this is this notion of drunken comportment. So there's some scholars who look at people's uh, attitudes when they're drunk, their behavior when they're drunk. And they've sort of loosely drawn up a division. So what they've said is in some societies... When you start drinking, being drunk has what they call a kind of timeout effect. It's, it's as if like the normal rules of society get suspended mm. and your behavior can really change quite dramatically. Often people might get a bit violent or doing things that are just totally out of their character. Probably the best example of, of a sort of timeout society would be Britain. Right? So I lived in the UK for a long time and you can see this in Britain every week, right? People drink and when they drink, the rules change, you know, and things look very, very different. By contrast, in other societies, right? Culturally, when you get drunk, it's not associated with things like yelling or violence. Instead, you see some of the physiological effects, people slurring their words a little bit, maybe having some trouble with balance, 
but it tends not to prompt, for example, the same degree of aggression or violence. Mm-hmm. So even in France, right? France is just across the channel from, from Britain, but France is known as one of these places where culturally the expectation around alcohol is different. So it reshapes behavior. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really, really I mean, that's fascinating just how, yeah. how a simple thing can be so different and just across the channel, right? Yeah, for, uh, for what it's worth, uh, much of the sort of former Soviet world would fall into the, the timeout style society. That yes. you would see. People kind of do a, a division between Northern Europe and Southern Europe. Oh, and it's a climate thing then? I just... mm, I, I'm not sure how much of it's, it's climate as much as sort of tradition. Places where you have um, traditions of wine drinking tend not to involve the same sort of like getting out of hand, mm. losing control. Whereas places that rely more on things like shots, vodka, for instance, mm-hmm. tend to see a little bit more of that. Okay. It's not exactly the same. Of course, yeah, yeah, but like the, a... the styles of Russian drunkenness and the styles of British drunkenness, there's still some differences there. But maybe it's a bit more similar. And you said that depends on what expectations, uh, depends on their expectations, it's really gonna affect. Some people, for example, argue that uh, maybe this whole, it's, it's a problem of a chicken and an egg. What came first, the spirituality, and then maybe it was the first trip, and then when people came back from a trip, they're like, okay, I feel, you know, it was something mystical, there was spirituality in it, I think I saw God, or it was someone back in the day tried it first, they couldn't explain the experience whatsoever, and like, that must be God. That's a great question. I don't think that actually it's one or the other. I think the two are mutually reinforcing. Mm-hmm. So the if you read the account of the guy who discovered LSD, right, who actually synthesized it, from what I remember, and I might be getting some of the small details wrong, but sort of, you know, he was working with the lab in the lab. He sort of accidentally ingested a little bit of it. He then went for a walk, I think in Switzerland, mm-hmm. somewhere around the lab, and he was really struck by how beautiful the forest looked and the quality of the sunlight. And you know, it's not so much that he was necessarily talking about God, but there are allusions there to the universe. Right, there are allusions there to seeing the natural world in a different way. So that substance sort of gets transmitted to a pharmaceutical company, which from there it then goes to medical practitioners. And, you know, people weren't treating it like an entirely normal medication. You know, it wasn't, wasn't aspirin. Or something. Oh, that's and, good. Yeah, and doctors understood <laughs> that they weren't giving a patient aspirin when they were giving them LSD. Um, so they insisted that you know there were very particular settings mm. in which uh, LSD might be given to someone. So you know they would, I don't know, redo an office, um, a physician's office, to make sure that maybe there was like a plant in there and some interesting colors. So that was coming from the medical side. But it really begins to get reinforced through people like Leary, which then reshapes people's expectations when they're recreationally experimenting with LSD later. Oh, okay. 
you know, so like now, for instance, I, I don't know what someone's trip would be like now, but it would be certainly informed by 50 years of history and discussions about yeah. what LSD as a substance is. And though those, our expectations have been shaped by, you know, a half century of history. Do we have any research where they test it? They tested it with a person, a person who has expectations and then a person who didn't know a clue. Do we have anything of that? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know. No? I, I okay. mean, I, yeah, I just a no cool idea. one to have. It makes a lot of sense, right? To, to try to understand that. Although I'd worry for the person who had no expectations and then maybe took LSD and who knows what that would be like for them. Right. Right. And is it true? Do you have any, is it true that, um, I believe FBI was making, was working with LSD? Like I heard, I read this really cool, I don't know if it's a theory or it's a fact, uh, that FBI was working, was conducting really severe research on LSD because they thought that it might help them to control the mind. Do we, do we have, a, is it true? Yeah, there is some truth to that. I don't think it's the FBI. I think it was the CIA. Oh, or CIA? Some, somehow, okay. We'll say the American military security yes. apparatus. Um, yeah, and the the details of the uh, so-called MK Ultra project are one of those things that's like debated endlessly. You know, some aspect of it is sort of conspiracy theory. Some aspect of it uh, is grounded in some historical truth. But yeah, there there were certainly um, some interesting experiments around things like the potential for mind control more broadly. So right now, for instance, there is a, a research group of historians in the UK who are really interested in the sort of Cold War, uh, Cold War narratives about mind control. And they're looking at, you know, they're looking at that sort of thing, what happened on the American side, um, but then also looking at those discussions on the, on the Soviet side. They did it too? To my knowledge, no. Okay. But there was still like uh, still some interest in how the mind could be shaped. And certainly, for example, there were people in Czechoslovakia who were doing experiments with LSD, not necessarily government, um, but physicians were, were using it. In the country I study, Yugoslavia, there was, uh, I believe, some limited experimentation. The Czechoslovak's probably the most famous from no, okay. the eastern side. Um, I, but I don't know of the Soviet... Do you the military know, apparatus doing anything yeah. with it? Do you know if they achieved any results with that? Like, is it possible to use LSD to control the mind? No, I no, I don't think mind control is, okay. is a possibility. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, that's we, a relief. We use ideology. It's okay. Yeah. We have that. That's a relief. Um, no, but the sort of brainwashing through LSD, I don't think that was, that was a very successful uh, find. Ah, I mean, kudos to them for trying. What's your idea on just a general direction of legalizing drugs or decriminalizing particularly drugs? Do you think it took a long time to legalize marijuana? Uh, do you think, and then you said as well that LSD is coming back not as, not as a decriminalization when it comes to uh, the drug itself, rather than some research with that. Do you see that we as a society in, in the long term will decriminalize most of it? And then we'll just roll with it and it's up to your own risk. Or we'll always have this pull and push with politics where we try to ban something. It's a great question. And it's really hard 
to predict exactly what will happen. I would say that um, there are countries that have experimented with full-on decriminalization. So Portugal is a really famous example. Mm. And from a public health perspective, Portugal is in much better shape now than they were prior to decriminalization. So it's been very successful. And people are beginning, sort of policymakers are beginning to look at the Portuguese model and say, hmm, maybe there's something in this. Because the question is, if you make the drug illegal, you're doing it to prevent harms. Mm -hmm. But what if the harms of the drug being illegal are greater? Right? Then does it make any sense? For example? Well, probably the, the easiest example um, to really grasp would be to look at the United States where, you know, since Richard Nixon, you've had this war on drugs, right? Every presidential administration, to some extent, continues to fight this war on drugs. Yeah. And the consequences of it have been pretty dire. So if you look at the rate of incarceration for drug-related offenses in the United States, like the number of people in, in jail just going up and up and up, um, that leaves behind often some pretty devastated communities because... Mm -hmm. You're losing parents, you're losing children, you're losing breadwinners, you're disrupting education. So people go to prison for a long period of time, they come out, they may not have skills, people's lives have moved on, they have a hard time reintegrating. You know, is, that, is that a better situation mm -hmm. than, say, finding someone who has some problems with drugs and trying to to treat them medically or or otherwise trying to help them so the the social costs of fighting the war on drugs are pretty high now all that being said you know if you spend time with people who are using some drugs like you can see how lives can be really disrupted so for instance i for, for a period of time i lived in romania and when i was there um sort of, I was tangentially involved in, in an organization that was uh, combating AIDS and, and HIV. So I spent time with those people and they were working a lot with users of heroin, other in, intravenous drugs. And you could see people's lives were disrupted by, by heroin, by mm -hmm. this desire to use it, by this desire to access it, also by the fact that it was illegal, however. So it's hard to say, oh, let's just make all drugs legal. I get where the opposition to that comes. But I would say the consequences of our current system are not better. Mm. And I think in the long term, we're going to begin to see change. So cannabis here in Canada is probably, I would say, the first of a wave of changes we're going to see in the future. Because it just doesn't make sense economically, it doesn't make sense socially to continue keeping most substances fully illegal or fully criminalized. Now, an interesting debate is, do you legalize things or do you decriminalize them? And I would say, and this is just personal opinion, at the very least, I would decriminalize all drugs. Decriminalized heroin in, uh, in Portugal as well, right? It's, it's all, it's a clean like state. Yeah, so, so in, the, in Portugal, the laws basically uh, exist in such a way that if you are clearly just using these drugs personally, 
then you are not going to go to prison. Hmm. You can be sort of sentenced to treatment, but you don't go to jail. You know, if now if you're if you're like involved in trafficking large substances, a different story. Yeah, of course. And they've been really successful in Portugal. And a lot of countries are looking at that model and saying, oh, maybe this is something that we could implement. Like certainly Canada's decision to legalize cannabis in part has been informed by the fact that in other parts of the world, when access to drugs, um, when the, when the sort of the legal framework around accessing drugs changed a little bit, can, you know, the consequences were not always catastrophic. Mm. Like, so in the case of Portugal, you see things like a drop in the rates of HIV. Okay. You see a drop in the rates of violence. So there, there are good reasons to consider doing it. How about the cost of health, on a healthcare system? Is that, will that rise with the decriminalization? Do we have a research or anything, any statistics that would say that, you know, when you legalize drugs, uh, decriminalize at least drugs, you have an increased cost on a healthcare system? Yeah, I don't know of any research that measures this okay. well. I think it's it's a logical conclusion to draw that there will be some increases um, in terms of healthcare. But I would say it might be actually a long-term, that trend might not hold true. Mm. So for example, although you might have to treat people who um, develop some problems with addiction, you might, if something was decriminalized, have fewer other health problems associated with the drug's illegality. Like you might see a drop in types of violence, for instance, or um, other types of accidents that require someone to go to the emergency room. So those, those are certainly possible. The other thing is, economically, if you decriminalize something, you, you can take a lot of money away from what I would call a sort of the enforcement side. Okay, the so, war on drugs side. The war on drugs, right? So you can you can pay fewer police to focus on drugs. You can you you have courts that are um, sort of freed up, not dealing with those trials anymore for people who've been arrested for possession. You might see changes um, in I don't know what lawyers are doing. So like, there's lots of ways that will take away from other industries and other. Uh, other pressures on other sectors of the government, etc. Yeah, and and so money could be channeled from one to the other. I see. I see. And the truth is that fundamentally, the the war on drugs doesn't work. Why like not? it just it just doesn't reduce rates very dramatically, right? So wouldn't you feel? But then don't you think it's a, maybe I would feel more comfortable since I know, like if I, let's say let's say. A simple example, I'm against cannabis, let's say. I'm against cannabis, I'm, uh, I'm old school here, I, I only drink wine. Okay. And um, I, don't want, I don't want my kid to go smoke somewhere. I'm like, don't do that. And then if you have a government that supports my idea here, I'm like, first of all, I'm gonna vote for them because they agree with my point of view, but it's also the fact that they're trying to somewhat control. If it's all free, he would just it's easier for him to get access. But if it's like if they're actually trying to fight it, um, maybe my kid, hypothetical kid, <laughs> will be fine. Well, I would say like in in your your hypothetical situation here, <laughs> there's a problem with it, which is that um, we've already seen that. 
for generations, probably you had parents who thought, yeah, I don't want my kid to go and smoke weed. And the kids were just doing it. Mm -hmm. So it, I don't think there were that many people. Certainly there's a small number, but there were not that many people who were avoiding cannabis before because it was illegal. Yeah. Right. Cause the social attitudes had, yeah. so, were enough that it, you know, people wanted to use it. Yeah. In the case of prohibition of alcohol, right? When alcohol was made illegal, there was a drop in drinking, but it was a moderate drop. So I think decriminalizing or legalizing might increase usage, but I think at a, at a relatively um, minor rate or, or, or small rate. I, yeah. just, I just don't think it's going to be the sort of thing where, you know, suddenly everyone you know is shooting heroin or using <laughs> MDMA or wh whatever it is. That seems really unlikely. That would be fun. Chemistry lecture. <laughs> not sure that. <laughs> okay. Um, that was great. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. I thank you very much for the questions. Yeah.